Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today we are going to discuss another of Gerda Lerner's contributions to women's history. It's a logical follow-up to her book, The Creation of Patriarchy, which showed the way human beings instituted societal structures wherein men ruled women, from prehistory through the time of the Greeks. The creation of feminist consciousness picks up right about where the creation of patriarchy leaves off, at the beginning of the Common Era, and it continues through the 19th century. But before we start, I'd like to introduce my reading partner for today, Jeanette Canari. Hi, Jeanette. Hi, Amy. Jeanette, I think you have our first point. Yes, and here's our first point. Women absorb the messages of their own inferiority. This is what Gerda Lerner says about this point. The fact that women were denied knowledge of the existence of women's history decisively and negatively affected their intellectual development as a group. Women who did not know that others like them had made intellectual contributions to knowledge and to creative thought were overwhelmed by the sense of their own inferiority, or conversely, the sense of the dangers of their daring to be different. Without knowledge of women's past, no group of women could test their own ideas against those of their equals, those who had come out of similar conditions and similar life situations. Every thinking woman had to argue with a great man in her head, instead of being strengthened and encouraged by her foremothers. For thinking women, the absence of women's history was perhaps the most serious obstacle of all to their intellectual growth. So interestingly, rereading this quote right now just makes me wonder what it would be like for us as women if we didn't have to overcome this sense of inferiority if we just knew that the words we had to say would be readily accepted and would not even be questioned. And I'm realizing, I think that's what it's like for men, mm-hmm. right? So she does give us written evidence from as early as the 8th century of women experiencing the sense of inferiority. She writes about Hugerborg a nun who settled in Germany in 762. Hugerborg was educated and well-known in her time for writing two biographies about two brothers, a bishop and an abbot. Her biography for the abbot also chronicled the conversion of the Germans and Franks to Christianity. Therefore, her work is considered to be a historical text. Yet, despite her achievements and renown, this is how she speaks of herself in the prologue of one of her books. I am unworthy, I who am, as it were, a puny creature, compared with my fellow Christians, especially corruptible through the womanly frail foolishness of my sex, not supported by any prerogative of wisdom, or exalted by the energy of great strength. She also calls herself an ignorant creature. Now, during the Middle Ages, Lerner explains there was a literary convention called the Humility Topos. I appreciated Lerner's description of this and explanation of it and the context that she brings. Mm -hmm. She says, this was a practice of writers to use the argument of their ignorance as a foil to heighten the power and effect of their miraculous inspiration. In other words, for dramatic effect, writers of this time 
would claim their ignorance until they received divine inspiration. Despite this custom, Lerner points out that Hugerborg's prologue differs from the humility topos. In essence, Hugerborg's words are an apology to her reader for being a woman who thinks and writes. Her plaintive words indicate her belief in her own inferiority. As a result of this inferiority, Hugerberg's words reveal the agonizing struggle within her mind and soul. Hmm. That's a powerful example. I love that you shared that example, Jeanette. Okay, so at the second point that we identified, and this is like, for me, perhaps the iconic Gerda Lerner concept, which is women reinventing the wheel. So here's a quote from Lerner. She says, men develop ideas and systems of explanation by absorbing past knowledge and critiquing and superseding it. Women, ignorant of their own history, did not know what women before them had thought and taught. So generation after generation, they struggled for insights others had already had before them. I illustrate this by surveying women's Bible criticism over a period of 1,000 years and show the endless repetition of effort, the constant reinventing of the wheel. And Lerner does, right, and Jeanette, in in the book, she does spend a lot of time on women's biblical criticism. And you do see, like, women separated by, you know, hundreds of years, they do just think of the same things over and over. And Lerner highlights so many women in this book all throughout centuries when I didn't even know any women were writing at all, which is amazing to read what they're writing. But Lerner keeps pointing out, like, notice that this is exactly what so-and-so said hundreds of years before, which we had just read like 10 pages earlier, right? And Lerner points out, yeah, this is exactly what this other woman said, but she had no knowledge of her writings. There was no way for them to pass on their knowledge. And, And women have just been kept behind, I feel this is what Lerner's point is, because they weren't able to have access to each other's work. Gerda Lerner, I think in her book, she really, she really points it out to us, this notion of having to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, I totally agree. I think in terms of mechanisms embedded in patriarchy, I think specifically like what we're talking about of the prohibition of education for women and girls, Yes. And I think, I mean, it's that's a really common tactic for oppressors, right? Well, and that leads us to the next point. Yes. So point three is the educational disadvantaging of women. And for this point, the word that came to my mind is the term deprivation, which Lerner repeats over and over again in her description of Sarah Grimke. Hmm. Born in 1792 in Charleston, South Carolina, As a daughter of a wealthy plantation owner, Grimke later became an abolitionist and suffragist. In her youth, Grimke was aware of the shortcomings of her education. Here's a quote from Grimke. With me, learning was a passion. Had I received the education I craved and been bred to the profession of the law, I might have been a useful member of society. And instead of myself and my property being taken care of, I might have been a protector of the helpless. Many a woman shudders at the terrible eclipse of those intellectual powers, which in early life seem prophetic of usefulness and happiness. It is because we feel we have powers which are crushed, responsibilities which we are not permitted to exercise, rights vested in us as moral and intellectual beings, 
which are utterly ignored and trampled upon. It is because we feel this so keenly, we now demand an equal education with man. So reading these words, I am, first of all, just struck by what an intellectual powerhouse Grimpy is. Her words also, of course, give me pangs of restless frustration for her. She was absolutely aware that she has been deprived from developing into her full potential, which in itself is just really heartbreaking to see that she is completely aware of this deprivation. I also think that the sense of not being chosen by a power authority, in this case, her father and her mother, also feeds into the experience of inferiority that we pointed out earlier. It also maddeningly encodes and ensures the pattern that men should lead and women should follow. So I also wanted to just give some context about the state of education. Education became institutionalized when elites, military, religious, or political, need to assure their position in power by means of training a group to serve and perpetuate their interests. Since women were excluded from military, religious, and political elites, they were considered to have little need for formalized learning. On the other hand, daughters of elites such as princesses and noble women, who might have to serve as stand-ins for sons or a husband, were as carefully tutored and trained as their brothers. Education was a class privilege for both sexes. From that quote of Lerner, I have an example of a law promulgated by King Henry VIII of England, which prohibited women and other gentle and noble women together, along with artificers, journeymen, husbandmen, laborers, and serving men, from reading the Bible in English, either in private or to others. All women, except noble women, are classed with lower class men. Also, the fame and notoriety of learned women of the Middle Ages and the early Renaissance attest to their rarity. With a few exceptions, they were noted more for existing at all than for their accomplishments. So as our second example of educational disadvantaging, we have Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz from Mexico. So Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz was a scholar who kept breaking the rules by reading and writing poetry. For context, she lived in the 17th century, more than 100 years prior to Grimke. Here is a quote from Sorwana. Who has forbidden women to engage in private and individual studies? Had they not a rational soul as men do? Well, then, why cannot a woman profit by the privilege of enlightenment as they do? What divine revelation, what rule of the church, what reasonable judgment formulated such a severe law for us women? I have this inclination to study. And if it is evil, I am not the one who formed me thus. I was born with it, and with it I shall die. Wow. Wow. The logic in her words to me is so powerful. Mm -hmm. There's so much here. But what jumps out to me the most is her inference that women's ability for independent thought is really a part of our humanity, not a sin or digression from nature. She also directly addresses the rationality of rules and conventions 
that prevent women not only to pursue a public education, but their own private studies. Before leaving this quote, I also wanted to point out the limited choices for women at the time. Sorwana, like so many other women, had to choose either the cloistered life of the nunnery or marriage. And returning to the issue of educational disadvantaging of women, the ability to write was considered a craft which was difficult to teach and therefore was taught by men. Lerner distinguishes the difference between learning to read and learning to write. Because it was considered a preparation for jobs, writing was for over a hundred years taught mainly to boys in town-supported schools, staffed by schoolmasters. From 1690 on, some girls won access to these schools, but schools were closed to most girls until the middle of the 18th century. Boys were to be educated for social usefulness and political leadership as citizens of a republic. Girls were to be educated for their social usefulness as wives and mothers. Um, so our next point is more hopeful, and that is that women, individual women, did eventually break through. A quote that I'd like to share from Lerner here is, is this. She says, the concept that women are born inferior, have a weaker mind and intellect, are more subject to emotions, and need to be ruled by men, had a devastating effect on women's minds. Even extraordinary women, talents which occur once or twice a century, had to struggle against this notion which deprived them of authenticity and authority. Each thinking woman had to spend inordinate amounts of time and energy apologizing for the very act of thinking. But the next part, like I said, is going to be more hopeful because Lerner does highlight these women who did do that work and kind of broke through the rules and were able to make contributions that actually did impact people after them. And we're going to talk about three of them. Roswitha of Gandersheim is the first one. And then Hildegard von Bingen is the second. And the third will be Christine de Pisan. So we'll start with Roswitha of Gandersheim. So Roswitha of Gandersheim was a poet and dramatist of the Middle Ages. She came from high nobility and is thought to have entered the convent early in her life, where she received an excellent education, which included not only religious subjects, but Latin, mathematics, astronomy, and music. The convent's rich library may have helped to foster her education. At the time she was at Gandersheim, this powerful abbey was freed both from church and royal rule. Roswitha left a major body of work consisting of eight verse legends, six rhymed plays, a poem depicting scenes from the apocalypse, and two historical poems. There is good evidence that her plays were performed or at least read aloud at court during her lifetime. What is of special interest here is not only her talent as a writer and her being the first known European female playwright, but the fact that all of her work is concerned with history, and especially the history of women. So Rosvita, as a scholar, says in her own writing, So if in either book I have included anything false in my composing, I have not misled of my own account, but only by incautiously imitating misleading sources. This rudimentary effort at documentation and source-critical analysis is quite remarkable in an age in which literature freely combined real stories, 
fabulous and miraculous events, legends, biblical sources, and fantasy without distinction. So to just comment on that quote, Rosvita also wrote extensively about rape through three of her dramatic plays that, according to Lerner, comes closest to expounding her views about the power of women. In these plays, her female protagonists are threatened by rape from masculine figures of authority. In these plays, Rosvita empowers women by stressing a major theme, the power of chastity over male power, which I read as a woman's right to say no as a means of asserting her personal will and power. With the lens of today, I know this appears problematic, but for her time, Rosvita is eking out what she can. She's eking out a resistance that demonstrates the ability of women to think for themselves despite the costs. In another play, she depicts the rapist as a ludicrous fool whose power is illusionary, which Lerner cites as a remarkable evidence of female consciousness at this early period. Yeah. It sure was, right? Because rape was just kind of a part of life for women for so long. So for her to be writing against it with such confidence, I think is really, really rare. Such a great example of a of a powerful woman who had a sense of her own authoritative voice. So I will take the next one. It's Hildegard of Bingen, and she was alive from 1098 to 1179. Um, Lerner talks about Hildegard and describes that she led a life of constant activity, strenuous travel and public appearances, exhausting mental work that lasted well into old age. Lerner says, quote, she was privileged in her ability to free herself from traditional gender roles by living as a part of a female community, enjoying what Sarah Evans has listed as a precondition for feminist consciousness, free space. This was the free space provided by convent life and the absence of women's domestic and reproductive responsibilities. But it must be understood that this relatively free space was a space within a patriarchal institution, the Catholic Church, in which all the higher offices and positions of power were held by the male clergy. So some quotes from Hildegard herself or rather, I guess, maybe some summaries of what she thought. She she repeatedly asserts that women and men are different in their physical and psychic structure and that women are destined to be subordinate to men. She says, man was transformed from clay into flesh and is therefore stronger. Woman was made directly from flesh and is thereby weaker. And so you just see throughout some of the things she says that like she kind of can't get past the Bible. Another thing that Hildegard is known for is her music and her art. She was really kind of a Renaissance woman and was multi-talented and created a lot of works of art in different genres. And there are lots of feminine figures in her visions and her art. She has wisdom or Sophia, the figure of Scientia Dei, or the knowledge of God, who embodies both kindness and terror, and Sapientia, representing divine wisdom in church and the cosmos. She has illuminations of her visions in circles and curves and waves and mandala-like designs. And this is really neat because Lerner points out that it avoids any concept of hierarchy in favor of wholeness, roundedness, and integration. Those are Lerner's words. And so I love that. I mean, if you've seen um, some of Hildegard's work, it is, it's very, it's always round. It's kind of undulating and 
organic and looks like it's inspired by nature. One last point about Hildegard that I think is really powerful is that she believed that she derived her authority from God himself. In her art, in three of the illuminations appearing in her late work, Lerner says, Hildegard has painted herself into the visions. The visions are abstract and interpretive in her subject matter. Each of these illuminations shows a mandala with many circles representing various aspects of the universe with a human figure at its center. In the left-hand corner of each of these pictures, there's the figure of a seated nun writing on two Mm. tablets shaped like the mosaic tablets. She's like inserting herself into the patriarchal (laughs) tradition and kind of like... Wow, it's fantastic. It's fantastic, right? (laughs) Oh, great. Okay. Lerner continues. She says her face is lifted up and touched by some sort of radiance. This self-conscious mm. self-representation may very well be the first of its kind for a woman. No longer merely God's little trumpet, which I'm inserting here. I forgot to mention that um, Hildegard ca- called herself in her earlier years, God's little trumpet, like she was just an instrument for the divine. But now she's kind of taking on her own role w- and her own authority. And now this is Lerner again. No longer merely God's little trumpet who wished to be seen in the art of writing down her visions in the act of authorship. Wishing to be remembered in her own right, she became the first female inspired by mystical revelation to claim her place in history. Love it. So that's Hildegard. Wonderful. I love how she evolved herself, the way she thought of herself from thinking of herself as God's little trumpet to actually inserting herself in the art. It's like you could just see the progress of her confidence Mm -hmm. and that sense of personal agency, right? Yes. So for our final example, I have Christine de Pizan, who was born in 1364 and is the first woman known to make a living by her pen. So Christine was born in Venice in, as I said, 1364, Her father, Thomas, was a famed astrologer and physician, and early in Christine's childhood, the family moved to Paris because the King of France, Charles V, asked her father to become his astrologer for the royal court. During this time, astrology was considered a science. Christine obtained an excellent education, although her mother opposed her studying thinking that it really wasn't necessary because, given their family's position in society, Christine was assured a good match in marriage. However, Thomas, again her father, objected to this and encouraged his daughter to read and learn as much as she could, in particular the writers of history. Christine read both the classical texts as well as the works of the Church Fathers. Lerner tells us that, at the age of 15, Christine married Estienne de Castel, a notary. Her husband encouraged her literary activities, and from all accounts, their marriage was very happy. Her husband died of the plague, however, in 1389, not long after her father had died impoverished. At the age of 25, Christine was widowed, without income, and faced with her husband's debts. She supported herself, her mother, and her three young children— by copying and producing books, creating illustrations, and even working as a notary, all while making her reputation as a writer. Lerner also tells us that Christine earned extra income as a popular ballad writer. People would come to her and ask her to write poetry that she would then set to music. 
Christine lived in the world, engaged in the court and politics, and was soon recognized as a poet and received a commission to write the biography of Charles V. She made her reputation as a defender of women when she attacked Jean de Man's popular Roman de la Rose for its mockery of women. This led to an exchange of letters with some of the leading male humanists of her time, in which her reputation was attacked and which started a three-century-long debate on the status of women, known as the Querelle du Femme. Christine continued her argument in her major work, The Book of the City of the Ladies, in 1405, a spirited defense of women and a deliberate effort to constitute a history of women. So because Christine is important and because we have more on her, I thought that you, Amy, could tell us more about the City of Ladies. Sure, yeah. Okay, she began the book with a marvelous account of her own transformation of consciousness. Sitting in her study, reading one of the many misogynist tracts of the day, she began to wonder, and this is understandable now that we've read some of this stuff, this is a quote, this is Lerner quoting Christine de Passant. The quote is, she began to wonder how it happened that so many different men are so inclined to express so many wicked insults about women. It seems that they all speak from one in the same mouth. That's the end of the quote from Christine. And now Lerner continues, she examined herself and her experience and could find no evidence to support the claims of these men. Yet she bowed to the authority of the male experts. Um, quoting Christine again, and so I relied more on the judgment of others than on what I myself felt and knew, end of quote. Here, for the first time in the written record, we have a woman defining the tension every thinking woman has experienced between male authority denying her equality as a person and her own experience. Christine was deeply depressed by this recognition when, as in a vision, three ladies appeared to her to comfort her and to bring her out of the ignorance which had blinded her intellect. Lady Reason explained to her that she had been selected to, quote, vanquish from the world the same error into which you had fallen, end of quote, and that she was entrusted with the task of building a city of ladies in which all valiant women might find refuge from attacks and slander. The other two ladies, rectitude and justice, would help her in this task. Awed and elated, Christine asked the three women to explain to her why men had so universally attacked and slandered women. The ladies offered various explanations, and the ensuing long dialogue with the three spiritual guides allowed Christine de Pizan to develop her historical argument and to illustrate by example the virtues of women. This allegorical framework, which assumes that the patriarchal explanatory system is built on error, structures the book. Her attempt at creating a unifying ideology is deliberately broadly based. She speaks at various points of all women, whether noble, bourgeois, or lower class. Her essential contribution was not only to attempt to rebut misogynist arguments by means of historical evidence, but to insist that patriarchal generalizations and dicta would have to be evaluated and tested in light of the female experience, past and present. What Christine de Pizan had to offer to women was the insight that women must look to other women for their defense, and that the collective past of women could be a source of strength to them in their struggle for justice. It's just wonderful what she has to say. So Lerner tells us that Christine's work responded to and demolished 
all the major and minor charges leveled against women. She did this by raising all the misogynist charges against women in a dialogue with Lady Reason, an allegorical figure of real serenity who answered each charge with arguments, with examples from history, myth, or fable, and with appropriate excerpts from the Bible. I love that she named, that Christine named her main figure in her book, Lady Reason. That just says so much about her and the way she thought. What is most unusual about Lady Reason's defense of women is that it confidently reversed the existing order of gender. She unabashedly depicted women in a better light than men and praised their virtues without apologies. Christine's calling the Bible for worthy heroines and examples set a precedent which would be followed for centuries, yet none of the women writing in the same vein ever cited her, nor is there any evidence that they knew of her or her work. Yet it was Christine de Pizan who launched women's participation in the debate over women's status in society represented by the Querelle de Femme, which would go on for three centuries in various parts of Europe and in England. And there I have it. Because of this project, I've learned about a woman author from the Middle Ages. And not only a woman author, but Christine de Pizan, who was outspoken and celebrated. I'm, I'm so grateful to have encountered these women. And I wish that I had known about them earlier, but better late than never. So that's right. Well, thank you, Jeanette so much for being here. This was a fabulous discussion and I learned so much from you and I'm so glad that we got to read this book together. Mm-hmm.